You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi folks and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink and you're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. This is episode 93 and it features a discussion with Amy Shaw and Lan Ju Zhang about external control arms. I hope you enjoy the 2021 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop and the content that was available to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the biopharmaceutical section. As a reminder for these discussions, please note people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. And now let's start the show. Hi folks, our topic today is external control arms. Today I'm speaking with Amy Shah, Vice President, Center for Design and Analysis at Amgen, and Landu Zhang. Senior Director and Alpha-1 Antitrypsin Program Lead at Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Good afternoon, and thanks to both of you uh, for being here. Good afternoon. Lanju, let's learn a little bit about you. How did you start your journey in statistics? Uh, hi, Richard. First, I thank you for this opportunity to share on this topic, uh, which I'm always excited about. Regarding myself, um, I came to the U.S., uh, exactly after 20 years ago, um, I first went to Texas Tech University and uh, got a master's degree in statistics. Then I was referred to my PhD advisor, Dr. William Rosenberg, at the University of Maryland at Baltimore County. So my research topic was response adaptive randomization for trials with continuous and survival outcomes. Uh, during my study, I did an internship at Walter Reed Army Research Institute and uh, worked on animal studies. That experience actually helped me start my career in non-clinical statistics at uh, MedMU. Uh, I provided statistical support for CMC research and the preclinical development, giving me a very good exposure to the um, drug discovery um, and the development outside clinical development. Uh, in 20, uh, 2012, I joined Abbott to head the non-clinical data group there. And a few months later, the company became Abbott. Uh One of my pr- proud achievements in non-clinical area was the first non-clinical statistical books uh, covering all non-clinical areas I edited with the other three virtually non-clinical statistician. While I was working in non-clinical statistical area, I, I continued to do research on adaptive design, and that helped me uh, transfer to clinical development about uh, five years ago. So I led a statistical group for clinical development in uh, immunology therapeutic areas, including about uh, 10 indications at every um, and earlier this year, I moved to Vertex Pharmaceuticals and currently served at the ARP1 and have Tripsin disease lead. Yeah, that's about my uh, uh, career in statistics. That's interesting. I didn't know you. I think I know you went to UMBC, but I, I didn't know you knew uh, Bill Rosenberger. Um, uh, I was a student while he was at UMBC as well and uh interacted with oh really okay (laughs) small world Um, yeah 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 amy welcome yeah yeah amy welcome back to the podcast Uh, you participated in episode 47 on pediatric medical product development uh back in 2017 it seems like a lifetime ago (laughs) what have you been up to since then um, thanks, Richard. Um, it's been a while since our last uh, podcast uh, on pediatric drug development. I think it was uh, 2017, isn't it? 
Um, thanks for inviting me again. Um, I'm very happy to participate in the discussion about this um, important topic on external controls today. Um, yes, uh, since 2017, um, I have been leading Center for Design and Analysis at Amgen, uh, really providing some quantitative science leadership for strategic drug development and also driving um, innovative uh, program study designs across Amgen's portfolio for evidence generation and decision making. And more recently, uh, the COVID pandemic has been posing um, unprecedented challenges, uh, of course, including statistical ones. Uh, however, I want to say that the silver lining of this pandemic is the increased use of data, advanced analytics, and the digi digital innovations. Uh, so we, we statisticians are right in the epicenter of transforming the data into knowledge and the insights for uh, decision-making. So, uh, of course, this will be a topic uh, um, of another day. Can you give us a little bit more detail uh, about your current roles? Um, Amy, um, what, what happens in the day-to-day -day, uh, at Amgen for you in this uh, design and analysis center? As I mentioned, I lead a Center for Design and Analysis at uh, Amgen. Uh, it's comprised of three functions, uh, biostatistics, uh, design and innovation, and the data science. And um, uh, biostatistics, as we all know, it's a, you know, um, a function which is disease area and the product aligned and the statisticians uh, deliver high-quality statistical expertise uh, throughout the end-to-end -end processes, including um, program study design, uh, study execution, um, analysis, reporting, and the publications of uh, um, clinical trial data mainly, but also some of the observational research studies. And uh, design and innovation and the data science are newer functions. And uh, uh, design innovation basically help drive um, adoption of some of the innovative approach and the strategic thinking uh, in the program and study designs uh, through consultation. Uh, within design innovation, we also build a robust centralized trial modeling and simulation capability to ensure simulation-guided, data-driven, innovative design for all um, interventional trials at Amgen. And uh, we also have a data science group, as I mentioned. Uh, they mainly have two focuses. One is on the infrastructure building, uh, basically for data curation and integration. Um, they help shape um, internal data architectures, really helping um, convert raw, messy data into usable format so that analysis can be done. Another focus they had is to uh, build advanced analytics and uh, graphics to help increase understanding of the study design and also facilitate uh, the data-informed decision-making. So that's pretty much the three um, sub-functions um, um, at the Center for Design and Analysis at uh, Amgen. Thanks. And Lanju, how about, how about you? You're pretty new at Vertex. Um, you may be still trying to figure out uh, the job itself, but what, what do you do day-to-day? As I mentioned earlier, um, I'm the uh, R for one anti-trip sensitive statistical lead. Um, while I, when I was at Abbey, uh, my role is really uh, focused on the late stage development, uh, uh, meaning the phase two and the phase three trials. Uh, but uh, in, at Vertex, um, actually, I'm uh, very excited to get involved in the whole clinical development from a phase one to registration, and also including um, real-world evidence studies. So um, 
and uh, from day to day, I work with um, other stakeholders to develop um, strategies for uh, clinical development, um, evidence generation, and also prepare uh, for um, interactions with regulatory agencies. Uh, the um, alpha one alpha two disease is a rare disease, uh, and yeah, like you mentioned, I'm still figuring out all the different pieces. But uh, based on the only like um, two less than two months, I could really see um, the signs uh, that can help to uh, really. Uh, uh, relieve the disease or re even uh, cure the disease um, and uh, we'll continue to see how the science can make a difference for the patient. Thanks. And today we're focusing on external control arms and, and probably a somewhat obvious question should probably define uh, what is an con external control arm. So maybe I can start off um, with the ICH-E10 uh, um, released in 2001. Uh, they actually has a, uh, they have a definition um, about this. They said a externally controlled trial compares a group of subjects receiving the test treatment uh, with a group of patients external to the study rather than to a internal control group consisting of patients from the same population assigned to a different treatment. Um, the external control can be a group of patients treated at an earlier time, uh, that is historical control, or a group treated during the same time period, but in another setting. So you can see, unlike in a randomized control trial, uh, these control patients are not randomized and are selected from data sources external to a trial. Uh, so I can see there are probably three settings that uh, external controls are used. Um, number one, uh, the control group completely comes from external data. So we, we we're talking about uh, mostly we, we have a single arm study, but uh, the control will come uh, from uh, external sources. So in this setting, we call that uh, external control substitution. Uh, the second setting is that a external control arm can also be used to combine with a contemporaneous arm in an imbalanced R21 randomized control trial. And typically, the stronger or less uncertainty we have on the external control and the less subjects are needed uh, in the concurrent control. Uh, I, I'll give you an example. Uh, in RCT, say, with uh, 150 subjects uh, with 2 to 1 ratio, um, we randomized 100 subjects to an active treatment and only 50 subjects to a control arm. In addition, we could also borrow information equivalent to an effective sample size of 50 subjects from external sources, so the overall ratio still can be one-to-one. -one. So in such setting, we call external control augmentation. So the third scenario is in a more complex situation such as the pediatric extrapolation like we, we had, we, we talked about the last podcast. We borrow information from adult trials or trials from older age children to draw inferences about a particular pediatric population. To me, um the any data external to the current trial we could uh, use. Uh, we could, um, uh, that's an external, maybe a not an external control arm, but uh, we are leverage, leveraging external control data. So, um, well, I, I think external control may be a little bit narrow, uh, but um, uh, so for, for example, sometimes we can use a real-world data or natural history data to um, 
uh, develop um, point comparison value um, in a single arm trial. Um, so I would also consider those uh, as a trial that using external control data, but maybe not external control arm. Thanks. And what are the benefits of an external control arm, and, and under what circumstances would an external control arm be used? Uh, Amy, you alluded to the, the pediatric uh, case where we're using uh, data from adults to help supplement pediatric populations, uh, but, but what other situations would this data be used? Um, so, good question. Um, so, first, of the benefits of external control arm. Um, so the research and the development cost and the timeline in the pharmaceutical industry has kept uh, increasing. If you go to uh, cost of drug development page of Wikipedia, you will see the average R&D spending per drug of a list of 12 big biopharma companies. So it ranges from $3.6 billion to $11.8 billion. So that data is as of 2013. So the average cost may have increased much further uh, as of now. So improving drug R&D efficiency is imperative for the industry. Since the majority of the cost is from data collection in clinical trials, leveraging available data or external control data is the most logical way to reduce the cost or improve efficiency. But this is, you know, not uh, the only benefit. And more importantly, uh, this is translating into less exposure of placebo or control to patients, as Amy mentioned in a few scenarios. And it also means um, quick enrollment. Um, in the Amy example, two to one could uh, um, expedite the enrollment and potentially faster access of new therapy to patients. So um, the other uh, question, under what circumstances would uh, the external control arm be used? Um, I think Amy already um, gave a few examples, um, very nice summary. Um, I um, want to uh, um, maybe uh, uh, explain from a, a kind of a, a different angle. Um, first, uh, based on the current regulatory uh, landscape, I think external control data should be always explored, but especially in the, uh, the following three areas. <laughs> um, one is the rare disease, uh, especially the first-in-class drug. So in this situation, there may not be good control. Uh, endpoints may not be well established. Uh, natural registry and the real-world data may provide good control to establish, uh, establish treatment efficacy through a single-arm trial. Um, and the second, uh, I think Amy already mentioned, uh, PDX trials. Uh, so these trials usually follow approval in adult populations. So for such vulnerable populations, adult data may be leveraged to reduce the pediatric patients exposure to placebo or control arm in the pediatric trial. Uh, the third scenario is the early stage trials in disease areas where quality control data are available. For example, in uh, rheumatoid arthritis, a lot of placebo data or the standard care data have been established in trials of many approved treatments. This data can be used in new rheumatoid arthritis trials for creating a synthetic control arm or supplement a small control arm. Um, as Amy mentioned, uh, the two examples, you know, one is substitution and the other one is augmentation. So um, I have designed a few rheumatoid arthritis trials uh, leveraging external control data. Um, for now, using external efficacy control data in non-rare disease confirmatory trial still has regulatory challenges. But I believe with the experiences accumulated, uh, this may change in the future. In fact, in uh, FDA guidance for both adaptive design and a complex and innovative trials, leveraging external data is um, discussed 
discussed and implied. So um, in summary, uh, leveraging external control data has many potential benefits in many circumstances. Regulatory agencies are open to this. Uh, statistical methodologies are well established, so it should be routinely considered. I want to add another note. Uh, regulatory agencies and the industry are a team. So both will gain experiences if we have more trials leveraging external control data, and then uh, both will learn from uh, the uh, uh, gain experience in either review or uh, in the trial design. And ultimately, this will benefit patients. Thanks for that summary, Amy. Do you have any additional thoughts? Yeah, I, I would say maybe, um, yeah, Lanji summarized very well. Uh, the thing I, I want to say in general, uh, randomized trials are preferred, pro providing evidence for drug efficacy or safety. However, when a randomized internal control arm is not feasible or ethical, you know, external uh, controls may be considered for comparative um, efficacy. Uh, you know, Lanji gave example in rare disease setting where there are not enough patients to support RCT or in high unmet need situations where a uh, uh, randomized control arm would compromise patient care. So in such a setting for comparative efficacy across different treatment arms, uh, external control can be used to either replace or supplement concurrent controls in a prospective trial. I also want to highlight there are also many other supportive uses uh, for external controls. Uh, for example, uh, it can be used to establish um, natural history of disease or set a right context for single-arm studies. Here, we're not talking about the formal comparative analysis. Uh, it can also be used to formulate prior belief um, with informative prior about a control arm. And also, I recently see an example it can also be used to demonstrate the contribution of components uh, to treatment effects in a combination therapy study. Uh, so in general, uh, using external information may reduce patient burden and uh, make effective treatments available sooner for patients. Thanks for those additional thoughts. Probably a, a, an obvious question would be, where, where do these external controls come from? So it may be coming from uh, mainly two types of data sources I see. Uh, one is uh, from, uh, you know, if you have a relevant uh, individual patient data from external uh, clinical trials, and uh, this can come from a prior uh, clinical trial data or historical uh, trial data or um, literature data. Or uh, nowadays, we have a, a lot of data sharing efforts. Uh, for example, uh, the placebo um, stand of care uh, data from uh, through the Transcelerate uh, uh, Task Force. Uh, that's example we, we could use. And uh, second types of data source is when we have a relevant individual patient uh, data from real world, uh, we call real world data. Uh, for example, data from uh, observational registries, uh, administrative insurance claims data, or uh, data from electronic health records. I, I have, we, we also have example to use um, to design a prospective observational uh, research study uh, to, to support comparative efficacy. Andrew, any additional thoughts? Well, I, I want to um, echo what Amy mentioned. Uh, I, I think, uh, especially for the transcelerate, um, I think that's a very uh, good um, data sharing um, uh, platform. So uh, especially, um, you know, a lot of time we cannot get access to 
other um, companies uh, control data if we do uh, usually do the on the summary level. Uh, but uh, through the trans-accelerate uh, placebo or control self-care data sharing, actually you can get an individual level data. Uh, that's um, really uh, helpful when you look at the baseline, we, um, you know, if you want to do uh, matching to create a synthetic control arm. Those are a very valuable um, uh, data sources, and uh, you know, these, most of these trials are from uh, randomized controlled trials, so their quality are usually good. Um, so I, I really uh, um, proponent of um, such data sharing for the placebo or standard care. Are there situations where you would want both a concurrent and, and an external control arm, so not necessarily uh, combining data uh, for a single arm, but having separate uh, control arms? I would say yes. When when it uh, I mentioned it's ethically acceptable to have an internal concurrent control arm, uh, but it's either suboptimal for patient care or not feasible to be adequately sample sized. So in this setting, mm -hmm. a reduced sample size uh, internal um, concurrent control arm uh, supplemented by external information may be considered. Some people actually call it hybrid design, uh, where it allows for the use of both external and uh, concurrent in-trial con in controls. Um, so there are many advantages to have uh, both um, a concurrent and external control arm. Um, you basically augmenting the concurrent control arm of a RCT with external control information. This really balanced the patient preference for receiving the active test treatment with the scientific value of preserving uh, randomization. Uh, as patients are randomly assigned to treatment and control arm, although typically with smaller chance to receive control due to unequal randomization ratios, uh, the scientific advantages of randomization in an RCT are still maintained. Um, in contrast to single-arm trials, RCTs with augmented control information would allow us to compare uh, the external control information with the concurrent in-trial control data, um, increasing the assurance that uh, the external information is uh, relevant, so therefore um, minimize the risk. The other point I want to mention is uh, blinding is often possible in RCTs with external control information. So really, the causal uh, interpretation of the observed treatment effects uh, can be strengthened, and also the potential bias of open-label trials can be avoided. Lundu, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I, maybe I want to share a, a few examples um, of trials I designed using such an um, augmentation approach. Um, so I recently I completed a trial in which we enrolled 20 placebo subjects in the trial and augmented with external placebo data of an effective, effective sample size of more than 20 subjects from historical trials. Uh, this is a scenario where uh, Amy mentioned uh, the uh, data augmentation approach. <clears throat> so, um, Excuse me. Uh, during the design stage, we carefully selected trials with the characteristics comparable to the new trial under design and evaluate design properties. For example, uh, the erroneous uh, risk, taking into account the potential difference between historical control data and the concurrent placebo data, and decided how many placebo subjects we should enroll in the trial and how many should be uh, borrowed from a historical trial. Um, it was well executed and we achieved our goals. 
And actually, for our SEP, uh, we have you know we have details of um, external data selection and the statistical methodologies of design characteristics evaluation. So actually, we submitted our SEP to FDA, and we have not received any objection um, before the database log. Um, in another example, um, we have. Uh, Active controlled uh, um, trial. Uh, so um, again, the um, the new drug arm versus the active control is two to one randomization ratio. So we augmented the uh, active control arm with uh, historical control data, and in addition, we also use the historical placebo uh, data to create a. Um, external or synthetic placebo arm. That's um, uh, so. It, it, basically, we can uh, not only uh, augment the um, active control arm, um, but also um, create a synthetic placebo arm to evaluate the uh, treatment at, um, difference against the placebo. We've we've talked a lot about the benefits of uh, external controls. Uh, what are what are some of the challenges of using them? Um, we we never get anything for free. So, <laughs> what what are the costs associated with external controls? You are absolutely right. There's no free lunch, so uh, there are many challenges too. So the first and the foremost challenge is to find the quality and the relevant external control data. Uh, these can range from real-world data, natural registry data, to historical control data. Um, it may be uh, only summary-level data, but sometimes you can also get individual-level data, as we mentioned earlier. Um, and Amy actually also mentioned several sources. Um, for example, the transaccelerate placebo and standard care database sharing. Um, so, um, yeah, very important to identify the uh, candidate data and then um, very carefully <clears throat> select the relevant data. Um, one of the major FDA concerns um, of using this, um, based on my experience, is cherry-picking the data uh, so that will introduce bias. Uh, the next largest challenge is the risk of prior data conflict. Um, that means the difference between external control data and the in-trial control data. In some situations, this may not even be observable. For example, in single-arm trials, uh, this difference can never be evaluated because there is no in-trial control data. Um, however, this difference is still there and is a concern uh, when we compare treatment data with external control data. In situations where there, there is in-trial uh, control data, the in-trial control arm sample size, as we mentioned earlier, is reduced, which means the increased variability of the in-trial control data. When this difference is not, an, not a negligible, um, or the, or the difference between in-trial control data and the historical control data is not negligible. It poses significant challenges for regulatory reviewers in the confirmatory setting and the sponsors for go-no-go decision-making because of potential inflation of false positive or false negative rates. Although there are some adaptive designs uh, where I need some analysis can compare in-trial control arm versus external control and adaptively enroll more control patients when the difference is big. Uh, the adaptive design may not work well since in-trial control arm sample size is usually small, um, and especially at the interim, and the variability is too big. So that's a real challenge uh, for you, um, using such a methodology. Of course, other factors um, uh, also um, uh, could be fund fundamental. For example, uh, we need to choose data from comparable trials um, 
but the comparability is always up to debate, right? So you could select a lot of uh, trial characteristics and they will never be identical. So there will, will always be some uh, uh, differences and then uh, uh, when you uh, claim they are comparable or similar, that's also up to debate. So it's safe to say here that, uh, there, you know, again, there's no free lunch. We have to evaluate all the risks and uh, whether we can manage before designing on leveraging external data. Thanks, uh, Amy. Any additional thoughts? Um, in general, I think uh, using external controls, uh, unless uh, unlike in a setting of a well-controlled experiment such as RCT, uh, may introduce bias to the study and the resulting erroneous interpretation. So, uh, Landry already talked about a lot of challenges. I want to highlight uh, there are additional challenges when real-world data are used. I, I think mainly in make sure real-world data is reliable, valid, and relevant. I think from study design standpoint, uh, you know, usually real-world data has, um, you know, a broad and a heterogeneous population, and it may not be able to achieve a fully contemporaneous uh, real-world data control, and there may be changes over time in treatment options per uh, local practice and access, even you, you have the same inclusion-exclusion criteria. And we also know that you know the endpoint definition could be different uh, in oncology. For example, the the definition of disease uh, progression in real world uh, is different from what we talk about uh, disease progression in the clinical trials. Of course, there are also the issue with uh, confounding from unmeasured covariates, right? And also there are some considerations in terms of. Uh, uh, real-world data conduct uh, in terms of how do you achieve uh, data auditability or traceability and how do you uh, ensure uh, study integrity and uh, um, different responsibilities. I think these are some of the challenges in using real-world data as external controls, I, I just want to add. Uh, are there special methodologies or analyses to consider when utilizing data from external controls? First, um, typically uh, Bayesian methods are the first choice of synthesizing data from different sources. Uh, so this is also implied in FDA adaptive design guidance and a complex and in a review trial guidance. Uh, these methodologies are well established in the literature, even with the covariate adjustment. So uh, if a conjugate price can be applied, then I would prefer that uh, because people can understand the contribution of different uh, data sources more easily. Uh, using samplers to generate simulated data is sometimes not avoidable, but in this situation, care should be exercised to check whether sequence, the sequence uh, has reached a steady state um, and how it may depend on the initial parameters. Um, so it's again important to understand how much contribution our different sources, I, uh, for example, external control versus in-trial control contribute, um, contribute to the final conclusion. It's very important. Uh, second, uh, when subject-level data is available, um, propensity score-based methods uh, for adjusting covariance may be preferred. Uh, again, there may be many options uh, in each step of this method. For example, if we use the propensity score matching, their greedy matching algorithm versus the optimal matching, uh, you may have a different choice of uh, calipers different matching ratios, different models to produce propensity scores. All these need to be carefully evaluated and the choice needs to be, to be justified. And also, uh, we need to be very transparent about um, the, uh, all these choices. Uh, third, if uh, real-world data is used, the relevancy 
quality and the unbiasedness of this data is very important. Um, Amy already uh, alluded to, uh, to this earlier. Sometimes it may take some uh, make more sense to use the vendor to do data selection um, for the sake of objectivity and uh, avoiding cherry picking, uh, even um, at the perceptional level. The criteria and the process should be well documented. Um, another scenario is for propensity score matching. The matching should be based on all relevant covariates and blind to outcome. So um, again, we probably need to document the process uh, to really demonstrate uh, the integrity of um, data selection. So in summary, objective data selection, uh, transparency of uh, external data contribution and the clear details and the documentation um, uh, statistical methodology are very important to execute such application. I want to say maybe in the three scenario I described, you know, in the external control substitution, very often propensity score methods are used. And uh, in the second scenario, when you have the external control augmentation, or the third scenario, when you do try to do uh, pediatric extrapolation, for example, very often some of the Bayesian methods or meta-analytic methods can be used. Um, so I want to maybe reference a paper uh, by uh, Smidley and uh, also Frank Bress are, uh, is also a co-author there. Uh, that paper was published in uh, Clinical Pharmacology and Therapeutics in last year. Uh, I found that's a very nice overview paper about statistical methodologies uh, in, utilized in the use of external controls. Uh, they also provide several nice case examples in all three scenarios of using ex uh, external controls. I just want to mention that. Well, we're always happy to get references. Um, <laughs> in talking about external control arms, we really haven't talked too much about regulatory agencies and how accepting our regulatory agencies of external control arms and, and what factors do they really focus on um, for determining the acceptability of, of, say, one design over another or, or one source of um, external data over another? I would say in the current environment, uh, regulatory agencies, they recognized, um, um, still recognize the well-designed and executed RCT as the gold standard approach in conforming efficacy of a new product. However, um, I think they're more, they are increasingly open to the use of external control data in settings where the use may be justified, like we gave example in rare disease, um, um, uh, disease areas with highly MN need or pediatrics, and uh, also where RCT in trial control is not feasible due to uh, patient availability or ethical controls uh, concerns. And uh, there are many known cases of regulatory approvals based on external uh, control data. Um, I have a few examples, but in the interest of time, I won't be able to go through that. Um, uh, in general, I think, uh, uh, you know, from regulatory standpoint, uh, you know, use of external control information carries the risk of introducing bias. So the, we talk about the risk can be mitigated by a careful selection of the source data uh, by accounting for the differences between the source and target trial and uh, also by a appropriate design of the clinical trials. Uh, so in the past, the clinical trials have been the main source of uh, external information on the control for a target trial. However, with the increasing availability of real-world data, 
these provide a additional source of relevant information on the control and uh, with appropriate measures, um, uh, real-world data quality similar to data obtained from clinical trials may be achieved in some settings. And I want to um, mention standard for um, substantial evidence using real-world data um, remains un unchanged. So you can actually look at the FDA um, uh, RWE framework published in 2018. And one of the elements is uh, um, uh, we need to evaluate whether RWD are fit for purpose, uh, if the intention is to compare efficacy endpoint, it's very likely that high quality and the complete uh, individual patient level data are required. And the other thing I want to mention, if a externally controlled trial design is chosen and uh, all design elements, operating characteristics, and the statistical methods should be pre-specified for scientific uh, credibility and the transparency. I think transparency about uh, study design and analysis before execution, it is uh, very critical for ensuring confidence in results. Landu, any additional thoughts? Um, Amy already uh, summarized very well. I just add one point that, um, yeah, uh, most important, um, you know, we should try. Uh, regular agency, they will say, okay, maybe it's a review issue, right? Uh, and it's on our, it's our burden, burden to demonstrate the, uh, you know, how we control the um, bias, um, transparent about the data um, selection. Um, to convince them that um, our the uh, our, this approach actually provides the evidence required for the uh, drug approval. So uh, yeah, I, I, I think he, um, based on my own experience, uh, some uh, divisions they were reluctant, but um, I, I think the overall the regulatory agencies are moving to a good direction. Yeah, more open to this at least uh, um, uh, dialogue on uh, possibilities of such uh, approaches. Great. And finally, uh, in reviewing a 2019 issue of the British Medical Journal, the, the authors performed a review of U.S. and European approvals and found that of 43 products utilizing non-randomized design, um, four involved matching to external controls with patient-level data, 12 referred to external controls, and 27 made no explicit mention to control data. Um, so do you expect that regulatory agencies will have more explicit requirements of using external control arms in the future to avoid single-arm studies? Uh, very good question, Richard, and uh, thank you for sharing with uh, literature. Um, first, I want to say a little uh, on the background of the paper. So uh, all indications of those 43 products were rare diseases with highly unmet medical needs. Many of them were accelerated approvals with the post-approval commitment trials. So uh, this is one of the scenarios we mentioned earlier where external control data may be and should be considered. Uh, in fact, uh, regulatory agencies have been aware of uh, um, using external controls in such a situation for a while. For example, um, Amy earlier mentioned the ICHE pain uh, published in 2000. Actually, extensively discussed external controls, uh, its advantage and the disadvantages. And uh, in FDA guidance, um, expedited the program for serious conditions, drugs and biologics. It also said that other types of clinical data that also could be persuasive include single-arm studies comparing the new treatment with the well-documented historical experience. So generally, FDA expects that such historically controlled data would be persuasive only if there's a large difference between the new treatment and the historical experience. 
So that guidance was published in 2014. So to answer your question, I think a single arm trial for registration uh, always need a justification, and the regulatory agency do expect uh, that external control data or external control arm should be at least explored when justifying a single arm trial to demonstrate the persuasive evidence of treatment benefits at registration. So um, I think uh, as the data era, uh, more quality and relevant data are becoming available through natural registries, real-world data. Um, so for these rare disease situations, external control data should be always considered, not only in single arm trial, but in many other scenarios we mentioned earlier. Well, I want to add just a more Implicit guidance, it is expected um, from the global regulatory agencies. On the RWD side, I mentioned the FDA RWE framework released in 2018. And, uh, you know, we expect a new draft guidance on RWE by December uh, 2021 uh, per PUDUFA-6. And, uh, uh, of course, on the um, China CDE released the RWD, RWE draft guidance last year. And there's a, on the European side, there's a uh, EMA big data task force currently is uh, uh, working in progress. And uh, um, on the historical control, Landry mentioned this. I think FDA has a guidance um, uh, expedited programs for serious conditions. Um, they, they actually talk about other types of clinical data that also could be persuasive, including single-arm studies, comparing the new treatment with uh, well-documented historical experience. Um, generally, FDA expects that such historically controlled data would be persuasive only if there's a large difference between the new treatment and the historical experience. Uh, they also said the sponsors uh, contemplating the use of historical controls should consult FDA's ICH guidance for industry um, E10 choice of control group and the related issues in clinical trials for more detailed discussions. Um, on the E10, E6 guideline, I know currently there's some proposal to, uh, I think there's uh, two uh, proposals to add annexes uh, to attach to the E6 guidance. Um, They're talking about Annex 2, uh, which is the non-traditional interventional trials and or data sources. And the Annex 3 is on non-traditional trial designs. So, so to answer your question, yes, we should expect more explicit uh, guidance related to external controls. Well, I want to thank you both for your time today, uh, Amy and Lanju, and I, I wish you continued success with your work. Thank you so thank much, you, Richard, Richard thank you. for inviting us. Thank you. Yeah. And there you have it, episode 93 on external control arms. And do you have an idea for a podcast? Are you part of a scientific working group that wants to show off their research? Do you want to discuss a new book that's been published? Do you want to dig deep into an important topic that may not get the appropriate bandwidth at conferences? Let's talk about it. Send me an email at richard.c.zinc at gmail.com. That's richard.c.zinc at gmail.com. In the meantime, get that COVID vaccine. Until next time.